0: This is Peter Jacoby for Profiles and it's my pleasure to welcome to the studio Vincent Liotta, a versatile and creative director of opera who heads the opera stage directing program at Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music and who keeps busy not only teaching and directing there but in opera houses and theaters around the nation and overseas. I've enjoyed Vince's work insistently at IU including the world premiere earlier this year, of the opera Vincent, about which I'd like to chat a little bit more later on, of course. But I've also seen two productions at the Lyric Opera of Chicago uh, in the last two years, The Elixir of Love and, and The Girl of the Golden West. They were done with gusto and with good humor that sort of exemplify what Vincent Leota does when he moonlights. I want to welcome you. How are you? Uh,
1: You've been at this directing thing for what, close to 30 years? No, I wish it was that short. I directed my first show for a little theater company in Jersey City, New Jersey in 1968. So that's 43 years that I have been directing that somebody has actually deigned to give me money for that. Oh, my goodness.
0: 43 years. Well, I won't ask you how many productions you've done, but. Do you know how many
1: different works perhaps? Actually, I do because I had to compile a a new resume the other day for a, a project. And it works out to being something on the order of 90 operas and 36 musicals and, oh, a dozen plays. That's not possible. I'm oh, sorry. That, that's just not possible. Oh, it's, it's, it's more than possible. After all, I mean, th- now do the do the math. I mean, that's what is that? That's 125 different shows. So divide that by 40, and that's only three shows a year. Well, yes, <laughs> I think you've done some of them
0: just a few times. Well, too. that's
1: the the repetitions <laughs> are something else. But
0: now, do you have favorites, or, or are you one of those artists who says, "Well, it's." I love whatever I'm doing right now.
1: Both. How's that for an equivocal answer? Um, I have favorites. I mean there are things that, you know, I would bend over backwards to do and I love to go back and revisit. But I also have to say that I really firmly believe that – I don't know that love is the right word but that you have to really feel that what you're working on at the moment is the best thing you're ever going to do. You know, this is just the best project um because I think if you have any less passion for it than that, you're not going to do your best. You know, and I really don't I don't have much uh what do I want to say, much sympathy with people who are like, Yeah, I'm doing this and I'll get it done and you know, give me my check, I'll go home. Because that's usually what it looks like. Well, we've spoken on a lot of occasions and I know the passion you have
0: when you go into a project. Uh, it's always there. Uh, I try and keep it there. Yeah. And you seem to love, sometimes you love the broken <laughs> children, uh, uh, yeah. like puccini's La Rondine, which you know is not one of my favorites. Yeah, but you right. Just...
1: Well, you know, I don't know that I consider any, if I considered them broken, I probably wouldn't try and fix them. <laughs> I worked with Jean-Pierre Ponel when I was much younger. And we once got to talking about Bellini, for example, and I completely agree with Jean-Pierre. I asked him why he had never done Bellini because he did Donizetti, he did Mozart, he did all of this early stuff, and he said, it's because I don't get it. And I feel the same way. I've never done Bellini either because I don't really – Bellini, I know, I don't see where the story is, which is always important to me. You know, what is the story you're trying to tell? And so I don't necessarily get it from a director's point of view. Some of the music is, of course, extraordinary. It's gorgeous, yes. But from a director's point of view, looking at it as a play, I don't get it. So if I don't get it, that to me is what's broken and I don't try and fix it. Um, but... Inherently, actually, I actually we talked about this with speaking You know, I've done Rondiné twice. I, I I would go back and do Rondiné anytime. I just I think it's an unsung masterpiece. I know that we have a difference here, but that's my opinion. <laughs> I spoke
0: of your versatility earlier. You work on such a variety of projects. Uh, they would undoubtedly require different understandings, different techniques. Just looking ahead to the IU Opera season coming up. You're doing A View from the Bridge, William Bochum's contemporary setting of Arthur Miller's play. Uh And then you're doing Rosenkavalier, Richard Strauss, a very different different animal. (laughs) How do you get yourself ready for these different projects? How do you prepare musically, artistically, and emotionally, I
1: would guess, too? It's, it's two different things and, and, and I think you can't conflate them. Hal Prince once said that, you know, the difference between directing a play and a musical and an opera and a film is not what the way that you do it. It's the way that you solve the particular challenges of that, and and I think it's for me that's exactly it. It's it's why I don't feel like you know I have to be a Verdi specialist or a musical comedy specialist or an operetta specialist. Um, the way I direct is the is the way I I direct. My techniques don't really change very much. It's the applications of them, and so when I look at a work, I try and decide what is the best way to apply my style of directing, if you will, my philosophy of making theater, opera, music, to that particular work. And so it results sometimes in different rehearsal techniques. It results in different ways that you put people together, ways that you cast, ways that you approach the work. But at the basis of it all, any work that I can find a story to tell, I can be very comfortable with. I get very nervous as a, as a sort of artist, when I don't see what the narrative is, when I don't see what the story is, because I suspect that I have always regarded myself as that kind of uh, storyteller. You know, there there are many different kinds of directors, and there are auteurs, you know, and there are storytellers, and there are shall we say, producers, you know, the Max Reinhardt, how much can you throw at the stage kind of school of theater. But for me, it's always telling a story. And so if I can see how to tell the story, if I can see the narrative, I can tell it. It's one of the reasons why I very, very rarely, and this is a pet peeve time, I get to air my pet peeve, which is if you take a story, La Rondine, Fonchula, Falstaff, Henry VIII, I don't care what the story is, Music Man, for that matter, you should be able to tell the story the way the author wrote the story. Unfortunately, in the world of opera, that gets very often shuntered into the heading of, oh, how traditional. Well, excuse me, the Iliad is traditional. You tell the story, and that's the way it has to be told. And so I find very rarely the impetus for me... To you know, say I'm going to make a political statement here, or I'm going to make this relevant to you know. I, many years ago, I saw a Traviata, and it was like we're making this relevant to AIDS. Well, how do I know that? Well, because you put in a program note. Well, excuse me, it doesn't change the story for one moment. Sure. And all it does is say I'm trying to take something and shoehorn it to mean something else. And I don't think that's a storyteller's job and and that's the way I view theater. So as long as I can see the story. So View from the Bridge has its story, which has to be told in a way that makes that story clear. Rosen Cavalier has its story. Rondonet has its story. Music Man, you know, Camelot, any any musical. Gilbert and Sullivan, Mikado for that matter. Mm -hmm. If you can see the story – that's what i need and when when i can't that's when i feel like i you know i'm floundering a bit here
0: so um, it's to you it's sort of theater with music
1: yes it 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 always is you know and anthony tomassini i don't know if you saw the article in the times uh, last week two weeks ago where he's talking about don't concatenate opera and theater. And I understand what he was saying, that theater is based in words and opera is based in music. But I don't think he's entirely right because uh, a guy I used to work with who used to coach singers always had to remind them that you really can't sing music. You can only sing words. Um, so to that extent, it is about telling a story. It is about words. It is theater with music. It's, it, it is is. Wagnerian in that sense, it's music drama. It's it's Boito, you know, who wrote perfectly good plays that then inspired some really amazing music. You know, it's Sondheim, I mean it's anybody who's ever really written Puccini, who used to browbeat his librettists, I mean, into you know, into craziness. Yes.
0: Not very comfortable relationships there.
1: Yeah. It's it's a wonderful Thing, you know, but Puccini was interested in telling the story the way he wanted to tell it. And once you understand that, and you understand that it's vignettes, that he didn't care about what happened in between. He cared about moment, vignette, vignette. And that's how the, so when you look at Girl with the Golden West, you look at Butterfly, you look at any rondine, what you're seeing is the dramatic parts of the story which is very much kind of, I suppose, the way theater treats life. You try and tell the dramatic parts of the story, and going to the bathroom or taking the bus is not of interest to anyone. So you jump over that part. But putting that together as a narrative, I think, is a sufficiently difficult job, let alone trying to make it, you know, be relevant. I think the one thing, going back to the Tomasini article that he said, is, you know, rent is a much better solution to modernizing La Boheme than taking La Boheme and trying to put it in Greenwich Village in 1992. Uh-huh. So you're not too much for Euro trash and all that sort of thing? Uh, no, I'm not at all actually for Euro trash.
0: <laughs> and I think audiences are not either. I think so.
1: No, but of course, you know, the saying is that if you go out on opening night to take your bow and they don't boo you, you haven't succeeded. Yeah. I mean, which is a little bit topsy-turvy land, <laughs> to say the very least.
0: I'd like to go back with you now to your origins. My origins. How all this started. How did you get into this strange, specialized area of directing opera and oh, such? Oh,
1: well, it started not being much of an opera person at all. I started, I, I started working in summer stock when I was in high school. And where is all this happening? This is all happening in New York and New Jersey. Okay. I was born in a trunk. Uh, No, I wasn't. I was born in Jersey City, actually. But I started in high school working in Summerstock, and I was was theater crazy, you know. And when I was in college, I really got my first serious exposure to opera. We had opera around the house. My father liked to listen to opera, and he had, you know— 78s of, you know, Caruso and Gigli and people like that singing. But, you know, it was sort of just background music to me. It wasn't something that I was actively participating in. I was a sort of musical theater baby. But when I was in college, I needed a part-time job. And one of my my classics professor of all people knew the head usher at the Met. And periodically he would send, you know – people to him, would he get a call that they needed extra ushers? So I got this job ushering at the Old Met and I would go in, you know, on a night, sort of like a standby usher. It's one of the reasons why I've seen Parsifal seven times because none of the regular ushers wanted <laughs> they, to work Parsifal. To <laughs> <laughs> but it was events like that. And so I started working at the Old Met and uh, actually one of the best moments is I actually worked at the night of the closing gala of the Old Met. 1966, I guess it was, 64. And it was one of the most exciting evenings ever. And they had, you know, because they had a bazillion people there. There was like an usher for every aisle. So we all got to work. But but I saw a fair amount of opera. It's where I really decided that I didn't understand Bellini. On the other hand, I, I, I saw a lot of Wagner, saw a lot of Verdi, you know, Um and saw some great productions and great singers, and so I thought, well, this is this is pretty interesting, and that was sort of that. It was it was pretty interesting, and and I got more interested in it. But I never thought of it as being a part of my career. I was still you know thinking theater. Scroll forward to the United States Air Force in nineteen seventy one, seventy two, uh, and I was in Anchorage, Alaska, and I was working up there and there was a woman named Elvira Voth who was one of the great influences and one of the most – she's one of those people Reader's Digest should write articles about, fascinating woman, the most interesting person you ever met. And she decided she wanted to start an opera company in Anchorage, Alaska in 1972, total population including the Air Force base is 35,000. And I had been working, you know, hanging around doing some community theater and stuff like that. And she said, well, I'm doing this uh, thing with this opera company, and could you come in and and do some scenes? All right. Long story short, it was Fiora Contino, who used to teach on the faculty here at IU, who came up to do a Verdi Requiem and a workshop on The Marriage of Figaro, Mm -hmm. and I did some scenes, and after The Marriage of Figaro scenes, she came up to me and she said, you know, I think you have a real sense for this kind of thing, or, you know, a real talent for opera. Have you ever thought about studying it? And I said, no, I'm, you know, I want to do theater. I'm living in Anchorage. She said, well, I think you should come to IU and study opera because we have a great faculty. We have, you know, the, and 72, one of the only opera companies in America. And I said, well, but, but, but. She said, let me make a phone call. She called Wilfred Bain, who was at that time, of course, the dean, and said, "Uh, I have this guy here, and I think you should, you know, he should be at IU, but, you know, it's August. He hasn't applied. Wilfred said, tell him to come. So 1973. 1973. I find myself at IU as a graduate student studying opera and having to learn an immense amount about it. I mean, you know, I've seen some operas at the Met. I've done some scenes. But fortunately, I also met Ross Allen, who I learned more about opera and who knew more about opera than any human being, I think, on the face of the earth. And there was Fiora. I mean, you know, I had good teachers and lots of opportunity to, to get to know the world of opera. So that's really when I started getting shifted into opera, which was solidified when in 1975, Bill Mason, who was then the production stage manager at Lyric, came down here, interviewed a bunch of us, and offered me my first job at Lyric as an assistant stage manager. And that pretty much sealed the deal. And from that point on, most of my career moved into opera one way or another.
0: That's a good story. My goodness. I'd like to hear some music now. And you came with three selections. And I'm going to let
1: you select the from the selections. Well, we've been talking about storytelling uh-huh. and you know, that sense of it. And I have to say that when you talk about storytelling, you have to talk about Wagner. All right. And I also have to say that one of the things I find about opera that made it so fascinating to me is, you know, this whole idea of these moments that are sublime. So I think that um, if you want to talk about sublime, you want to talk about good storytelling, you've got The Ring and, uh, and you've got Brunhilde's Awakening from Siegfried, from um, Siegfried. Ewig Wadish.
0: We have just heard some Wagner uh, from Siegfried, uh, and our guest in the studio is Vincent Liotto. Uh You've spent so much time of your career uh, at Indiana. Uh, it must mean that there's something really important happening that keeps you here.
1: Well, I've spent a lot of my career at in Indiana. I mean, I came as a student in the 70s, I came back in the 80s, and worked five summers here on the faculty, including, by the way, something that most people don't know, the collegiate premiere of Sweeney Todd was done here in 1983. I remember it, yeah. And, and that was my first show back in the 80s, but I was here for then five summers in the 80s. And then I came back in 95, and I I don't know, maybe it's, you know, the, the music of home or something, <laughs> calling, to quote, Frank Lesser. Um, but I just... Life has evolved that way, you know, and I keep somehow i don't keep doing it I've, i' you know i've never actively sought to come back to indiana it's always that the, the the path has led to some crossroads where Indiana became a choice, an option an you know an opportunity, and i've always taken it because i've always been very happy here i mean it was. It was where i I really think where I got well i not not think even it 's where I got established in the world of opera, and on the upside of that is that you know I got a grounding that that i wouldn 't trade for the world in in lots of different not just directing but just literature and knowledge and and general sense of of what opera as theater can be. The, the downside of it is that it m- moved me for a while so much into opera that it took a while to get back to doing musical theater, which is- Which you also love. Which I also love. love. And, yeah. you know, and operetta somewhere in between there. But that that came with time. I mean, you know, there was there was always the, uh, the opportunity. And that was one of the things about being here, that- there's always been that opportunity to do opera, but then we also have done, you know, we do operettas, we do musicals, and so there was a lot of, of of a sense of breath that working professionally you tend to get pigeonholed. And if you're opera you're opera, if you're musicals, you're musicals. If you're operetta, you're operetta. I know colleagues of mine who basically ninety percent of what they do is operetta. I love it all. And one of the nice things about being here is that I get to do much of it. Yes.
0: Directing a chestnut, you know, a public favorite mm-hmm. versus a lesser known work. Uh, are there differences in how you uh, approach your task? Are there differences in how you perceive your responsibility?
1: Um, yeah, it comes directly out of this idea of storytelling um, with a chestnut. Let's take Rigoletto traviata some some very or Madame butterfly for you know for an example. you have to look very carefully at what is the story and what is the chestnut part of that story, and that's how I figure that i can um I can still be very loyal to the story without you know like we're doing this because that's the way you've always done it sometimes. You don't want to reinvent the wheel. I, re- I remember an interview with a di- another director many years ago about Elixir of Love, and he said, well, I'm not going to do any of the standard jokes. I'm going to do everything new, and it will be funnier and brighter. And I went to see it, and I thought, yeah, but that isn't as funny as, you know, the joke everybody knows is. Sometimes it can be, but I think with a, with a standard work, with, a, you know, a real – Traviata kind of work, or or Barbara of Seville, you know, something like that, you have to look at it very carefully and say, what is the story being told here, and what kind of comedy or what kind of drama comes out of that story? And sometimes it leads you in the same path as everybody else, and sometimes it leads you down a slightly different path. Where it doesn't lead you is to putting it on the moon, that's the distinction with a lesser known work. it's easier because there's so much less common perception, and so people who look at it take it almost as at at its face value as a new work, you know when you're doing something that's um, that is not your everyday opera, you know your seven standard biggies um People tend to look at it and not have this, oh, well, I've seen another one of these. Um, I did a Falstaff once and I was sitting in the audience and obviously the person sitting behind me didn't know I was sitting in the audience. But I did this Falstaff and and, and quite frankly, I do a fairly f- amusing Falstaff. I mean I love comedies where the audience actually laughs as opposed to sitting in respectful silence because they don't want to interrupt the show. And this was a good production. It was a good performance. But it was Falstaff, you know, and things took place in the garter and things, you know, Falstaff did not rape anybody. I mean, any more so than he has to in the the course of the story, you know, and he didn't rip his clothes off and there was no total frontal nudity. And the person sitting behind me said, well, it's all very well, but it's so traditional. There's nothing new here. And I, thought after I, you know, stopped steaming, um, that yeah, you're right, there is nothing new here because what am I gonna do? Make it a political commentary about the oppression of the middle class by the, you know, the nobility? What? It's not that's not its purpose. Um it was written to be a comedy. Similarly, Madame Butterfly is not there for me to expose the political implications of what happens after the bombing of Hiroshima. And I say that, and it may sound outrageous, but you know as well as I do that there have been productions that have done that. I don't think that's what it's about. I think it's a story about people, and there is a certain time frame, although you don't have to be religiously, you know. I, look, Rosenkavalier, we are actually moving forward a bit into uh, the uh, Regency period, and we're doing it for good and sufficient reason because when we looked at with the designers the Regency period, for example, what you notice is that all the men have hourglass shapes. Well, to me, one of the big challenges about Rosencavalier is how do you make Octavian not seem like a you know a bad version of Carabino because the emotional level is so different. And we thought, well, this is one way because that's the way men looked. And so you lose a lot of those problems. When we did uh, Rondinet, you know, and we put it in the Art Nouveau, the t- turn of the 19th century, because it takes it out of this kind of faux historicity that I think, in Rondinet's case, is one of the things that has always impeded the audience because knee britches uh, make that crazy. Um, you know, it just makes it harder to understand that there's a real emotional thing happening to this woman and that she she makes a really noble sacrifice. You know, most people who don't like Rondine, if I can get on my hobby horse for a moment, don't like it because they feel like, oh, it's, you know, she's not a Puccini heroine. Why? Nine times out of ten, they'll say because she doesn't die. Well, that's not what makes a Puccini heroine for me. Puccini heroines are strong women. That they're women who know their mind and make decisions for themselves and accept the consequences, whether that's Minnie or or Chocho San or Tosca. So anyway, and I thought, you know, you put that in a place where people are becoming more aware of that about women, you know, so it doesn't look like faux manon. And it works the it works the other way. I mean, even even Verdi knew that. You know, originally where he wanted to put Traviata was where it should be. But in that time, in that place, the audience wasn't getting it. They saw all the wrong things about it, so they actually moved it back a century. And then suddenly everybody got the story without being interfered with by the the political implications of the time in which it's set or their preconceived notions of that particular period. So I think that's, you know, that's part of the legitimate interpretive process. But I think there's a difference between that and being, you know, sort of auteur about it and saying, well, we're going to put this on the moon because this way everyone will see. It's like a famous Goethe Dammerung. I'm wandering a little bit. There was a production of Goethe Dammerung in Italy where the end of Goethe Dammerung was they were all gathered around the table and there were a bunch of candles, labros on the table. And as the, you know, the final music starts to play, they all fall asleep. Um, They were only slightly behind the audience, actually.
0: (laughs) It makes one speechless. It seems that some of
1: these directors don't trust the originals, don't trust the greatness of. And you have to trust your material. You know, you asked me one of the things about this when we talked about doing varying things and I was talking about Bellini, but that's the point. If you can't trust your material, you shouldn't be interpreting it it, because it's not your job to be the author. It's your job to bring the author to the stage. And that's why – I think that in large part that comes from the fact that I started out as a sort of musical theater baby Um, because musical theater, American musical theater, that's the first rule. You take the material and you build it but you build it because you trust it as a story. No one is going to take My Fair Lady – and reinterpret it into, you know, what Soviet Russia? Somebody
0: in... will. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about Falstaff just a few minutes ago, and I know that's another of your selections that you brought in, the end of Falstaff. Yes. So could we talk about that? And, sure. And that, that's easy. It's the greatest it.
1: single moment on the operatic stage that certainly I have ever experienced. I have two favorite moments, one I brought, one I didn't. It is the end of Magic Flute and the end of Falstaff. And mostly for me, the same reason, because they are affirmations not only of the human character, but of the artists themselves. Mozart at the end of Magic Flute, you have to think, it's the last thing he ever wrote. This we know factually. I mean, you know, he's got Clemenza de Tito on one side of the page and and Magic Flute on the other. It's the last thing he wrote. He is perilously close to perishing. And he takes a moment that starts out sounding so solemn and so self-conscious with its own profundity, and he turns it into an ode to joy, a chorus of sheer joyousness. Jump forward to Verdi. He spent an entire life avoiding writing comedy from everything you can read. He didn't seem to be a man who had much of a sense of humor in general, but I also get the sense of read, you know reading Verdi biography that this was not a man who was going to sit down and you know yuck it up with you, but he gets to the the last thing he's writing his sort of swan song, and he has a very good poet, but he takes what could have been easily a kind of postlude, you know, like, okay, so guess what? The joke's on you and the joke's on all of us and let's go home. And he turns it simply into one of the most riveting, engaging, exciting, mind-boggling pieces of music that speak not only about the opera, but about his entire life. And, of course, for me, the fun of it is it's almost like he's he stuck his tongue in his cheek and said, so you thought I couldn't write complex music. Laughs on you. I wrote what I chose to wrote because that's how I chose to express myself and I could do this in a minute and I did. So that's, that to me is the greatest moment in musical theater of any kind of musical theater and maybe any kind of theater. So let's listen to the fugue, the end
0: of Giuseppe Verdi's Falstaff. just heard another of Vincent Liotta's favorites, uh, The Fugue, The End uh, of Verdi's Falstaff.
2: Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
0: It seems to me that he had so many melodies left that he wanted to get them all into this opera, and so they're little pieces
1: of (laughs) Well, it's almost Puccini-esque in a way, isn't it, that he does that? Because, you know, through most of his career, the thing was, you know, they always said Puccini had so much melody in him that he could write eight bars and throw it away again. Verdi, they said, you know, he was a very, very parsimonious man with melody, and he'd take a melody and he'd string it out as long as he could. But then in Falstaff, you... They come, they go, they're here, they're there. And it's, I think you may be right. It's like, well, look, I've got all this left and I might as well use it now because I'm not going to use it again. Exactly.
0: (laughs) I'm speaking to you just days before you help introduce (laughs) a new opera to the public in a workshop performance. Uh, Your colleague at IU PQ Fan, the tale of Lady Thi King. And it's an old
1: Vietnamese tale set to music. Mm -hmm. It's based on traditional – there's a traditional theater in Vietnam called Hot Chow, which I probably mispronounced but close enough, that uh, this is one of the traditional plays. And Vietnamese theater, like so much Asian theater and even like miracle plays or mystery plays, is a combination of music and theater and poetry and a lot of things. So Phan thought this would be a really – interesting subject to try and move into a more Western configuration, a more Western operatic configuration. And uh, he first showed me the libretto, oh, two, two and a half years ago now. And I thought it was, you know, a a very interesting story. So he he went forward and he wrote it. And um, I don't know if you're aware of it, but um, we're in the process of premiering a work by every member of the composition faculty here. And Fon once wanted to do an opera. That was his choice. And so this is the opera that he has been working on. And we then made the next step, which is I personally believe, and again this may come from being raised in musical theater, that you need to do some sort of -of out-of-town tryout Because you never really know as an author – I believe that authors never really know until they can see what has to happen when you put it on its feet that what they've written is what they want. So for preference, with any new work – and I've done a bunch of them – if there is an opportunity, I like to do a workshop that amounts to being like an out-of-town tryout, which is to say we're not going to do just one or two scenes to sort of get a sampler of this thing. We'll do the whole thing, bare bones, no production to speak of, but get it all on its feet so you can see the beginning, the middle, and the end. And between my point of view as the interpreter and your sitting back now and having to watch it as an audience is what you're seeing, the, what you thought you were getting because this is what I'm giving you based on what I'm seeing, you know, my, based on my looking at the script – and it's always been a very productive process. When we've had the opportunity to do that, I think it has always made for a stronger work. And that's exactly where we are. I mean, as we've been working through this, it is it is not difficult. I mean, it's, it's almost an exercise in, in technique to get the entire opera on its feet without having to worry about production and all of that. But... What we have been doing is we have also been looking at it and already Fon has been looking at it and seeing, you know, like, well, that's really longer than I wanted it to be or wait a minute, there's this moment here that – You know, I understand that it goes from A to C, but unless the audience has a B, nobody's going to get to C. And so we've already been doing that. So where we are, and this happens with every workshop, is we finally get to the public performance of it, which will happen, you know, in a couple of days. And that really is, first of all, I think for the audience, it's a bit of an adventure to see something in its embryonic and evolving state still. But from our point of view, it's also important because now you have complete strangers coming in, like an out-of-town tryout. And if you sit in the audience, you can feel the audience reacting. And so you get these clues as to, even again, another step. What I thought made sense and worked of what the author thought made sense and worked, we're now looking at the audience. And the audience... It may still not make sense, and then you 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 know you make note of that, and you go back, and that's you say, all right. Well, look, we need before we finish this. Here's some more input to tighten it, improve it, clarify it, make it more exciting. What anything like that, and so it's all part of that evolutionary process, so that. When you take that and then you finally go to production and you throw in the scenery and the lights and the costumes and this and that and, you know, the orchestra, because we're doing this with piano, it all becomes enhancement and to a work that you absolutely, going back to that word, you absolutely now trust this material 100%. And with a premiere, that's really, really important mm-hmm. that you've got to try and make it. Not as good as you can but the best it can be because you get one shot out of a box and that's that's the premiere, if you will. Earlier this year, you did Vincent, Bernard Rands, and J.D. McClatchy mm-hmm. and that was not done that way. I mean it was a more no, finished it, product. Yeah, it wasn't. Actually, the reason it wasn't done that way is not that we didn't want to do it that way but you need to have the time – to do it, to find out how to put this into the schedule, and so the option came up, and, and to do a workshop, and and I, and I was frankly asked. They said, "Well, look, why don't we do a workshop of you know four scenes?" And I said, frankly, no. I don't think that's of any use to me. It's certainly of no use to Bernard. It's no use to Sandy. Because all they will know is that they have these four scenes floating out in space and somehow they work or they don't work. But that doesn't tell you anything about the work. So we opted not to do it. What most people don't realize is that does not mean that we did not continue to work on the piece. And during the rehearsal period, it just makes it harder because you're trying to get to a full production while you're also trying to work on the piece. But Bernard made revisions. Sandy made revisions as we saw it in the rehearsal period. You know, I had suggestions. Arthur had suggestions. But it just it intensifies the pressure because you're trying to do two things at once. You're trying to get a product to be finished and it's best. And you're trying to work on on a project and perfect it at the same time. And it's, a, not, it's not the same thing. The things that I think about, for instance, with the fan piece that I'm thinking about are not the kind of things that I will think about – when it actually goes to a finished production where it has to become a lot more involved with the actors, it has to become a lot more involved with the production values, it has to become a lot more involved with sort of pacing and polishing. Right now, all I'm trying to do is be a really good editor and say, look, this is what you've written. How does it work? How does it work? Mm-hmm. And and so with with Vincent, the challenge was that we were doing that – Both things at the same time. And that's not the easiest thing to do. I think we did it successfully, if I may say so. But it's not the easiest thing to do, which is why I I prefer the the workshop system. When we did Our Town, we did the workshop. And again, there, we we found out things before we ever went to production that ultimately when we went to production, we knew – could be improved, changed, were changed, and worked, and we didn't have to worry about it while we were in production, which is in and of itself a whole different way, different way of doing it. So it's it's really apples and oranges in a way. They're they're all they're all fruits, but but you, they're not quite the same fruit. There's so much more we could talk about,
0: but we're running short on time, and we still have one piece of music too. I know.
1: Um, I tend to do that. <laughs> and I love
0: this piece of music.
1: <laughs> so do I, which is exactly the reason it's there. Okay. You know, I've talked about opera. I've talked about music. I've talked about operetta. But, you know, there are just moments that are just great tunes. And that's one of the reasons why you do this, because whether it's Un Di or You're the Top, there are great tunes. And this, to me, is one of the great tunes which I am so glad has gotten interpolated very often into Merry Widow because who does Juditta anymore? <laughs> yeah. But it is everything operetta should be. With my lippen he kussin' so heiß. Franz Lehor.
0: Just heard My Lippen Sie Christen so heiß by Franz Lehar, another selection that Vincent Leota has brought into the studio, one of his favorites. Uh, I wanted to ask you one more thing, uh, and that is where are we heading in terms of opera and
1: operetta? And, uh, what's the future? Oh, I, I'm not having a crystal ball, but I can tell you something that somebody pointed out to me the other day. I think where we're heading is interestingly enough we're heading toward a more to, to sort of what wagner tried to do we're heading to a more undifferentiated musical theater and that's going to cause some problems it's causing problems for people now you know because there are you know like but what about verdi what about the great melodist what about puccini but you know what when puccini and verdi were writing there were people saying but, but wait a minute what about mozart Unless you keep going forward, unless you keep doing new things, which is why I love doing new works, that's when the art form is going to stultify and die and it becomes archaeology and solely archaeology. I think as long as there are people out there writing new musicals, writing new operas, even writing new operettas, which is redefining itself – I mean, if you look at A Little Night Music, for instance, I think that's as much an operetta as it is a musical, Mm -hmm. um, if you want to put it into these generic categories. But I think as long as there are people out there who are willing to do new works and support new works and take chances on new works, then the, the form will continue to thrive and grow. And it's getting a bigger audience. I mean, this thing that The Met has done. You know, And everybody's like, oh, but now they won't come and buy tickets because they can go to the theater. I don't think it works that way. I think it's opened up a world of exposure to works and to a musical theater form and to a musical form that most people wouldn't have otherwise. Not most people, but many people will take a chance on and therefore go and experience things that they would not have experienced otherwise. Isn't it in the best sense of the word like a museum where you have old masterpieces – and new works. Yeah, exactly. Together. And and you never know which of those new works is going to become an old master eventually. Right. So that's why you got to hang them, you got to look at them, you got to do them. Because you can't predict in advance what's going to be great. And I am sure that if you had asked a composer in the 19th century, asked Puccini to pick out what, you know, his masterpiece will be, I don't think he would have picked Bohem as being the one that everybody wants to do. But he didn't know that either. And who knew that it was Puccini? Why wasn't it Mascagni? So I think that you have to keep just doing. And the unfortunate part is that as support, a little plug here, but as support for the arts tends to fluctuate and especially tends to be drying up at the moment, that's where the damage comes from because you can't do new works. It was easy. Again, I'll finish with Hal Prince. When he produced Pajama Game, which was somewhat revolutionary, it cost him $54,000 and he raised the money in a week. Today to produce a musical on Broadway. Is 40 or 50 million dollars. Spider Man is pushing 70 million dollars. That doesn't militate for taking chances, for getting a lot of new work out there. But you have IU, you have community theaters, you have, you know, repertory companies, you have regional companies. Let's do something other than just recycle Traviata. Not that I want, not that I want people to stop doing Traviata, but there's a lot more to do.
0: Well, I talked about your enthusiasm at the beginning of the show, and I think our listeners know now that, indeed, you are an enthusiast. And I thank you, Vincent Liotta, for spending this time with us. Uh, this is Peter Jacoby for Profiles.
2: The program you just heard was recorded in July of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Pascash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, WFIU.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.